chapter 13. Acts in chapter 13. I want to read a relatively large portion of Scripture, beginning with verse 13 through the end of the chapter. So I'll do what I've been doing as we've been working our way through some of these longer narrative passages, and I'll kind of annotate as we go, then set up uh, what uh, I'll be concentrating on from this passage this morning. But as you find that, please pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, and now we come to your word, I pray for me, for us, for strength uh, to, to be attentive to think our way through this passage, uh, to hear what you have to say, to embrace that which is true. Uh, God, we know that there's all kinds of things within us that tend uh, to uh, move us to resist truth even, even after we've been born again, even after your spirit lives within us. And so we know that uh, we are still dependent upon you, so we pray that your spirit would work in us now that which is well-pleasing in your sight, uh, that this word would equip us for every, with every good thing for doing your will. And we pray this, therefore, in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts in chapter 13 and verse uh, 13. Hear the word of God. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Paphilia, And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now that little sentence, and John left them and to return to Jerusalem, will be very important soon. Not today, but soon. So just take note of that, that they had taken John Mark with them and he left them at this point. Verse 14. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Um, Now it's important to realize this. You know, it's easy for us to read this, but understand they're traveling hundreds of miles. And they're going over a very mountainous terrain that also has rivers that flood and bands of bandits. And so this trip, especially, uh, that took them to Pisidian Antioch was a very dangerous one and a very difficult one. So, so understand that, that they're moving into, in, in, you know, they're really moving here. It's easy for us to read these sentences and think they hopped on a bus or a plane or a whatever. But it's a difficult travel. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, it's important to realize that Paul and his missionary journeys very often would begin in a synagogue. He would go there, a place of worship of Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem. And so he would go, and, and that's where he, he made his, his, his first um, appearance there. Verse 15, after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And so he must have been well-known, must have been known as a rabbi. Now, I suppose Paul liked this. I know that when I attend churches, of which I'm not the pastor, I try to hide uh, so that this doesn't happen to me, and it does from time to time. Um, But here he was. So this word came, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said this, Men of Israel, and you here fear God. No, so, so get a sense of, this, of, the, of the audience. It's, it's Israelites and God-fearers. Now remember, from chapter 10, when we talked about God-fearers, they were Gentiles who had come to trust in Yahweh, but who had not been circumcised. And so they were still on the outside looking in, in some sense, but they were believers and so they were known as god fearers so they were believers in god as their uh, as the men of israel were to be men of israel and you who for god listen 
the God of his people Israel chose our fathers, so he's referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob there, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arms, he led them out. And so he's beginning now, Paul, in this sort of first recorded sermon we have of Paul, walking them through their history. So he starts with the fathers saying he chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He came to them. Uh, and, and then he gets all the way to Egypt and says that, that God made them great and then he led them out, verse 18. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Now that could also be translated that he carried them. That sounds a little nicer, I suppose. That's how it's put in Deuteronomy. But, uh, but put up with them is probably a good one as well. Put up with them in, in, in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, so this is in the book of Joshua, He gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. 400 years in Egypt, about 40 years through the wilderness, 10 years uh, driving out the enemies so that they could get their inheritance in the land. And after that, he gave them judges until until Samuel the prophet. So he's just working his way through. He's got out of the Pentateuch now, and now he's in the book of Judges and gets into 1 and 2 Samuel, verse 21. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, Interestingly, that Paul's name was Saul. Don't you wonder if his parents named him after King Saul, as we might name our children after some Bible character. Uh, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. It's an amazing statement if you know the life of David. Won't go there now, but just think about that. Verse 23. Of this man's offspring, that is of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So the promise of Jesus through the Old Testament. Verse 24. Before his coming, John, that's John the Baptist, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. And so basically, and I don't know if we have the entire sermon of Paul or if this is a sort of a synopsis that Luke's giving us sort of the high points, but as Paul's preaching to them, he walks them through their history. And notice he ascribes everything to the work of God. He doesn't say, well, they thought this, and they did this, and these people did that. But he's saying, God raised them up. God did this. God did this. So he's saying this, that, that God is, is in, behind and through, and working in, and sovereign over all of their history. And it culminates in the coming of this promised one, Jesus. So verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. That's that's just an amazing statement. Uh, because, we, in fact, we read this morning as part, of, uh, as part of our declaration of the gospel in John, the true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
And so that's being reiterated by Paul right here. But he said that didn't, just because they didn't receive him, didn't mean it wasn't true and didn't mean that, that God's word wasn't true because they fulfilled it in rejecting him because the word of God said they would reject him. And then verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, again, all of this orchestrated by God, it had been written of him, it had been said this was going to happen, they took him down from the tree, cross, and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Okay? So you get, he's talked them all the way through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and the appearances of Jesus. And now he's saying this is all true. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so Paul quotes psalm number two. And it's about the Messiah. It's about the very Son of God who's going to come and, and the Father will give him the nations. Verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 55 of the suffering servant. Verse 35. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not, not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Now, does that ring any bells to you? This isn't a quiz. But it could ring a bell from you from Acts chapter 2. That's a slice out of Peter's sermon. Peter says pretty much the same thing right from this Psalm number 16. That, that Jesus, unlike David, didn't see corruption. Now, the question is, did Paul learn this from the scripture on his own? Did Paul learn this from Peter? Or was he there? Just put that in your little noggin. But verse 38, and this is going to be the key to all of this. This culminates the whole sermon, really. And we'll spend some time here in a minute. Verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware therefore lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look you scoffers be astounded and perish for I'm doing a work in your days a work that you will not believe even if one, t even if one tells it to you. Now that's a little section out of Habakkuk chapter 1. And you might remember that the prophet Habakkuk goes to God and says, are you ever going to judge the world? And God's answer is, yes, I'm in process. Pretty soon the Babylonians are going to come and they'll be my instrument of just judgment. And so what Paul is saying here is beware. Because if you don't believe this word and you're not freed, from everything that the law of Moses couldn't free you from, then judgment really is coming. So it's a very stiff and deep word of warning. You may not catch that unless you grew up as those in the synagogue had grown up with the prophet Habakkuk. Verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. 
And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Think of that. Think of what's happening in the city of Pisidian Antioch. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And that little word reviling, I don't know how it is in your translation. This is the English Standard Version. But it really means hating him. They had a great hatred towards him for this. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Again, you understand that, that this, is, this is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 46, that, that when the Messiah would come, that, that, that the word would go to the ends of the earth, not just in Israel. And we see that in Jesus in Acts 1-8 when he says you're going to go to the ends of the earth. We saw it in the call of Paul in Acts chapter 9 when he was converted on the road to Damascus. The word given to him is you're going to go out to the Gentiles. And so he comes to every city and first he presents the gospel to the Jews and to those who would receive it, that's fine. But then he's rejected and then he goes to the Gentiles in those communities and out from there. And so now he's entering into this calling. Then verse 48. And and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many who were appointed to eternal life believed. Now just mark that little phrase. We'll come back to it. Verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. All right. Paul's sermon. You get it. He's talking to a group of Jews and God-fearers. They understand the Old Testament. So he walks them through it. And he walks them very much through their history, saying God was in all of this, culminating everything in the coming of Christ and the work of Christ, uh, because everything is going to be summed up one day in Christ. And so he brings all that to the forefront. And he says about Jesus that he was crucified on that tree, but that he rose from the dead. And then he says in verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed. Now that little word freed, if you have a new international version, is translated justified. And the reason that it's translated justified in the NIV is because it's the same word, exactly the same word in, the, in Greek, that's translated justified everywhere else in the New Testament. All right? So we could translate this as uh, being proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is justified, or freed from, everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And so what Paul is declaring to them is there's freedom from sin that comes because of Jesus and comes through him. That is, there's a justification, a justifying that comes through Jesus. And he says that the law of Moses couldn't bring this freedom. The law of Moses couldn't bring this justification. 
There's stuff from which you can't be freed, stuff from which you can't be justified by the law of Moses. And this, this word justification or to justify means to declare righteous. It's, it's, it's the declaration of a judge. And when a judge looks at someone and says, you're righteous, meaning in association with the law, you're right. In relationship with what this law says, you're right. Which means you're not guilty, but rather you're right in relationship with this law. And so Paul is making this astounding statement. And the astounding statement that we're so used to, but we shouldn't be, is that in Jesus, God declares you righteous. Now, that can't happen through the law of Moses. And if we take the law of Moses in a narrow kind of sense, meaning we take the law of Moses as meaning something to the effect of the Ten Commandments, we realize that that law of Moses can't declare us, and God through that law of Moses can't declare us righteous because those commandments simply condemn us. I mean, summarized... Jesus tells us that those Ten Commandments mean that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And then Jesus kind of bumps up that second part and he says that we're to love one another as I have loved you, which is even more impossible, if you will. Because as we look through those commandments, we realize that if we look at those and we look at our lives, then there isn't a declaration of righteousness at the end of that. Because we haven't loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. God comes and he says, I want you to have no other gods before me. That is, I want you to look to me, God says, to define you, to tell you who you are. I don't want you to go anywhere else for that definition. And and what I'm telling you is that I've created you and given you life so that you would glorify me. That is, that you would reflect who I am. So that means you would honor me because I'm God that reflects who I am. And it means that your character is to reflect mine. And so I want you to, to worship me and I want you to honor me by obeying me joyfully, not begrudgingly, but joyfully. And I want you to live so that if someone saw you, they would know that I'm the one who created you because you would resemble me in your character of of love. And yet we realize that we look to others to define us, to tell us who we are. We go to others for pleasure. We go to other things to direct our paths. And then he says, I want you to only worship me. I don't want you to make any images of me. I don't want you to think thoughts of me that aren't true of me and say, this is what God is like. But I want you to worship me as I am. And I want you to revere my name. I want you to revere who I am. I want you to live in such a way that you know that I'm holy. And even in the context of your life, I want you to set aside a day. I want you to set aside time where you recognize that that, that I provide for you and you rest completely in me. And then I want you to turn from yourselves and I want you to love each other. Children, I want you to honor your parents. I want you to respect life in one another and don't take it from each other. 
Husbands and wives, I want you to be faithful to each other in your relationship of marriage. I want you to respect the property of others, so don't steal. I want you to, to be truthful as I'm truthful, therefore don't lie. And I want you to be content in all that I've given you, so don't covet. And we just go down that list. And at the end of the day, I don't look at that and hear God say, Bill, you're righteous because you've done all of this. In fact, I hear the very opposite. And then even if we take the the law of Moses in the broader sense and and we throw into the law of Moses the whole sacrificial system and we we throw in the the sacrifice of animals which which God gave to the people in order that he might live among them because they knew they weren't righteous according to the law. They knew the wages of sin was death because God has given us life and we've misused life and so justice says I take life away from you. And since the wages of sin is death, God would say, I'll accept an animal in your stead. And there were rules about that and, and what that animal would be and how it would look and all of those kinds of things. But, 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 but that really ultimately couldn't justify because it was just an animal. And God said the blood of bulls and goats won't satisfy. They simply looked forward to the coming of Jesus And so once Jesus has come, then we realize he's the one that all that pointed to. And so there's only justification in him. For instance, in Romans chapter 3, Paul would would write this, verse 21. He writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Basically, he's saying there's a righteousness that comes from God. It's God's righteousness. And it's been shown to us apart from the law. The law just condemns. But the law and the prophets bear witness to verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. This is the righteousness. It's his righteousness given to us. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified, that is declared righteous, by his grace as a gift. It isn't something we earn. It's something that's completely a gift to us through the redemption that is in Jesus, that is, by his death, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Big word, propitiation. I trust you know what that word means if you've been hanging around us. But if you forget what that word means, if you don't know what that word propitiation means, it means that there is a satisfaction of the wrath of God. Something's happened so that God's judgment towards us, his wrath towards us, his righteous response towards our sin has been exhausted, has been satisfied. There's no longer a case against us. It's all been paid. And so he says that this propitiation has taken place through the blood of Jesus. That is, when he died, our payment for sin was paid. For whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Now, how in the world, or maybe how in heaven, did that uh, show God's righteousness? It showed God's righteousness because, you see, God cannot declare guilty people not guilty. That would be immoral. That would be unjust. That would be like one of our judges looking to a murderer or a rapist or a thief and looking them square in the eye and say, you're not guilty, when they're clearly guilty. That would be wrong. That would be unrighteous. 
So how can God declare us righteous if in fact we're not? Because of Jesus. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That declaration of righteous towards us is just. Not because we're righteous in ourselves, but because through faith in Jesus, we're in him. And his righteousness covers us. So God is just. Our sin has been dealt with. It has been paid for. Just. And now he's able to look at us and say, in my son, through my son, because of my son, you're righteous. Not only does God look look at us as if we've never sinned, he looks at us as if we've always obeyed. Now, if you're like me, you sort of know that. (laughs) You go, okay, I know. I know that's true. I know that's true. It's just amazing. How could that be? I know my life. And yet God looks at us and says, I know your life, but I also know the life of my son. And I also know his life is worth yours. And I also know what he did on your behalf. And as we trust in him, you see, then this righteousness of God in Jesus clothes us. And so Paul is saying, the only way that that can be true of you is through faith in Jesus. The law can't do it. Your obedience has failed. But through faith in him. And this is an exclusive, uh, exclusive offer. It's only in Jesus. It's only true in him. Uh, because he gives this warning in verse 40. He says, Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about, that is, that judgment would befall you. Now, not everybody likes this exclusivity of the gospel, but it is true. Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when you think of it, if sin is our problem, how else could anyone come? If sin is our problem and God is holy, how else could we come other than through one who's paid our sin and who's lived righteously so that in him we could come before God? What other way could there possibly be? And who else could possibly be the one to do that? This week's Newsweek just came the other day. I love Newsweek. It gives me so much information, so many illustrations. Great article, by the way, uh, about women in, women in power. You should read it. It's an interesting uh, whole article. Um, but uh, this particular woman, uh, Elaine Pagos, is a religion professor at Princeton University. She writes this. She writes, in my last book, I asked two questions. What is it about Christianity that I love in spite of many things that I don't? And what is it that I can't love about it? I don't love the claim that it's the only true religion. And I don't love the way that the many sides of Christianity have been used to nurture hatred and dissension. But I do love the enormous range of stories, poems, chants, and testimonies to the way that people discover the human spirit and express that in relation to each other, in relation to communities, finding spiritual meaning is essential. 
This is part of the way we imagine, we hope, we fear, and we explore. We can't live without it. So what she loves about her understanding of Christianity is it enables us to find the human spirit as opposed to it enables us to know God. And what she doesn't like about it is the exclusive claim. And thus there must be another way. There must be someone else. There must be another way in order to know the human spirit. The truth is there isn't another way to even know the human spirit, let alone to know the spirit of God. And, And we see that in the response that takes place. Verse 42 tells us that that the initial response of, of the people is, is, is positive. They say, come back next week and tell us about this. And so it gives some a week, no doubt, to meditate on it and begin to rejoice in it because Paul and Barnabas said, now during this week, I want you to continue in the grace of God. But then when the end of that week comes and they return to, to speak again, uh, what we find is that, that there are some who are jealous and who therefore come against Paul and Barnabas to contradict him and argue with him and say that he's wrong, and others believe. And those ones who are jealous uh, simply uh, are playing out, it appears, uh, the very sin of which Adam and Eve first committed. And that is, we want to be God. We want to be autonomous. We want to be the ones to decide what's right and wrong and what is really truth. And what we're saying to you, Paul, is this can't be. This can't be truth. And then there's this other group that believes and and rejoices. And then in verse 48, Luke makes this uh, amazing analysis. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, you know, Luke could have just as easily said, and as many, could have easily have said, and many believed. That had been fine. We'd have just been reading right along, right? But he doesn't say that. He says, and as many as who were appointed, some of your versions would have, and as many who were ordained to eternal life believed. Now, why does he do that? Why does he put it like that? Well, you say, because it's true, must be, it's in the Bible. The Spirit of God is working in Luke at this particular moment to analyze the situation and to lay out the facts and, and lay it out rightly for us. So, so we trust that this is true. And so then we really have to grapple with it. We can't do what I'm sure Dr. Pagels does and just says, I didn't like that, therefore it's not true. Uh, we don't get to do that. We, we, we say, no, it's in there, so it must be true. Why does Luke put it like that? Well, certainly it's, it's not unlike other statements in the Bible. Uh, even as Paul is preaching in verse 17 of Acts 13, he says, the, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. And so he's, he's, he's already setting us up for this, this kind of idea that God is sovereign. And when this says that he appointed those who believed, it means he ordained them, he decreed it, he proclaimed it, these will believe. Uh, you could also translate this, he assigned them to belief. <laughs> you know, he, he just he assigned them. You were going to believe, and they believed. Uh, and, 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 and so it's, it's not unlike other things that, that we read in the scripture, that God chose Abraham. If you're reading through the book of Genesis, you come up to chapter 12, and all of a sudden, God shows up in Abraham's life. No prelude to that. No reason that he would 
show up with Abraham as opposed to someone else? He simply does. It's not because Abraham is a holy man, it appears. In fact, when we read in Joshua chapter 24, we read that Abraham's family were simply uh, worshipers of false gods. But, but he shows up in his life and he, he chooses Abraham and, as Paul says, the fathers, our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, uh, and Jacob. And so, so it's not unlike there that, uh, that, that he would come to him. And our call to worship this morning, we read in Ephesians in chapter 3, that uh, uh, God chose us in Christ before the foundations uh, of the world. In fact, in our, call, in our uh, declaration of the gospel in John chapter 1 this morning, uh, we, we read uh, these words out of John 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And you're already getting the sense, this is, this is about God. And in chapter 3, in verse 19, we read this, And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things... Uh, hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God so if good comes we know that's because of a work of God and then in John in chapter 6 we read this uh, I'm the bread of life says Jesus whoever comes to me shall not hunger whoever believes in me shall never thirst but I said to you but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you not believe, do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then in verse 44, Jesus says this. No one can come to the Father. No one, I'm sorry. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is saying, listen, it's impossible for you to come to me unless my Father draws you. Thus those he draws will come. And then in John chapter 10, Jesus said this. He says, I told you and you didn't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe me. I'm sorry, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Notice how Jesus puts it. He says, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. He doesn't say, you're not part of my flock because you do not believe. He's saying, flockness leads to belief. If you're part of my flock, then you will believe because you're my sheep and you will indeed hear my voice. In Romans, in, in chapter 8, we read these verses that are very, very well known to us. It begins with one of the most well-known verses probably in all the Bible. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also, pre he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you notice in that unbroken chain, as, as Paul the Apostle is laying this out, he's saying that those who are glorified are the very ones that God justifies. 
And those ones God justifies are the very ones he calls. And those very ones he calls are the ones he predestined. And those very ones uh, he predestined are the very ones that he's known. Didn't know that they would come to faith, but knew them and loved them. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, the the passage that we read this morning um, for our call to worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul puts it like this. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And in 2 Thessalonians and, and chapter 2, he puts it like this. But we ought also, verse 13, to give, you, to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through satisfaction or sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The point. That when Luke says that those who were appointed to eternal life believed, he's not saying anything new. He's just simply saying what we've been hearing all along, what we hear all along as we read through the Scripture, that God is sovereign over our salvation. And I know this raises a hundred questions in your minds. And I'm not going to deal with those. I'm going to deal with the one question it answers. And that is, how can any of us believe? That's the one question this answers. How can any of us believe? Because we know the effect of sin in our own lives. Uh, We know when Adam and Eve sinned, it it brought sin into the whole human race. And then by Genesis chapter 6, three chapters away from when they sinned, the, the summary statement of God about human beings was that every thought and inclination of their hearts were evil continuously. That was his summary statement. And that's true of human beings. And it's, it's every thought and every inclination of the heart. And the heart is who we are. It isn't simply our emotions, but it's everything about us that goes into what we think and how we act and it's it's everything about us when someone wants to describe you they should describe your heart it's how you feel it's how you think it's how you decide it's everything that goes into you that makes you you and god is saying that that is so affected by sin it so pervades us that the very inclinations of our hearts the inclinations of our lives are evil continuously that's why the prophet jeremiah could say that the heart is deceitful above all things who can tame it? The answer is no one, at least among us, can tame the heart. It's deceitful. It lies to us all the time. And so we can't even trust our own hearts. And to say that means you can't trust yourself. You can't trust your own inclinations. It means your own inclinations will lead you astray every single time. And thus we get to the New Testament and Jesus comes on the scene and he says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Uh, That doesn't leave much freedom, does it? He says, you'll follow after sin. That's who you are. When Paul writes in Romans, he says that, that the fleshly mind or the carnal mind or the mind of the human being, the natural mind, is hostile towards God. There's a hostility there that says, I don't want to follow you. That's what sin does in us. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this, and he says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Not just a little sick. You don't have a little flu. 
but that, that can be corrected with some antibiotics or some, some rest or chicken soup or whatever, uh, we're dead, unresponsive, separated from the life that is in God. Second Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes, that the evil one has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so, so, so if all that is true for us, the big question that we should be worrying about is how is it that any of us can believe? Who can take away our sin? Who can take away the impact of this sin upon our lives? We can't. We're stuck in it as slaves to it, dead whatever metaphor you want to use. But the good news of the scripture is, as we read through the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah, who says, a day is going to come when God will write his law upon your minds and write his law upon your hearts that has changed the very inclination of your heart. The prophet Ezekiel comes and says, he's going to take out this heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He'll put his spirit within you and cause cause you to walk in his ways. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And he uses this image of of birth. And, And we all know that none of us physically conceived ourselves. Birth tells us If something is born, then it came from the decision of others, or the accident of others, whichever the case may be, Uh, but uh, the surprise to others. But but none of us conceived ourselves. We're not sitting around thinking, it was really a good idea that I had to be born. Right? So I always say that children should give parents presents on their birthdays. Not the parents' birthdays, but on the children's birthdays. I don't know why we give them presents. Uh, They didn't have anything to do with their birth. Um, And so Jesus is saying us in this image that you didn't have anything to do with your spiritual birth either. This This is being born of the Spirit. This is a work of the Spirit. This is God at work, mysteriously changing your heart so that you could believe and trust in Him so that He could be just and justify you and declare you righteous. How can any of us believe? And I think Luke inserts this little phrase in here just so that none of us would be proud. Just so that that these who came to faith on that particular day in the midst of these Jews who were jealous and, and, and contradicting Paul, they couldn't stand up in church the next Sunday, in synagogue the next Sunday, and said, we're better than you because we believe. And now we have eternal life. Paul would have said, as Luke would have said, it wasn't your doing. Don't be so proud. This was a work of God. And so if you read statements like that, if if, if this fits with your theological orientation and you say, see, I told you God is sovereign over salvation. He's the one who predestines and chooses. See, we're really right. You've missed the point. It should humble you. And you should bow before him. And rejoice and say, thank you. Because mysteriously, amazingly, he appointed you to believe. And if you're sitting here thinking, that's impossible. I came to faith on my own. God didn't intervene at all. This was my choice. And you've missed the point as well. 
Because if that's your perspective, then you're saying thank you to God and thank you to yourself all at the same time. And God will share his glory with no one. And so we have these statements that just catch us up short. And we say, thank you. We have it before us this morning. The ground of which, for which, God can declare us righteous and still be true to himself. This very work of Christ, this very expression of the justice, the holiness, and the love of God. And you know that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup And again, after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. That is, to justify you from everything which the law of Moses couldn't justify you. To free you from the wrath of God. To free you from the penalty of your sin. To free you that you might stand in his presence forgiven, justified, declared righteous. And that comes to all who have faith in him and ask yourself this question. Why did I come to faith? Is it because I'm righteous? Is it because I'm smart? Is it because I'm just a cut above all those who don't believe? And it's that point that you need to realize It was because you were appointed to believe, ordained by God. And if that doesn't make you shiver, then you're not getting it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, it's amazing to us just amazing that any of us can believe. We know that it must be you at work in us, enabling, causing, giving us new hearts, giving us new life, that we could turn from our sin and trust in you. God, we confess this raises questions about us, about you. We thank you for those who have answered those questions biblically. Father, this morning, the concentration of our attention is simply on the fact of what you've done for us. Enable us to be amazed. Enable us to be humbled. Enable us to bow before you and give you thanks. So, Father, around this table this morning, we pray that you would set aside this bread and this juice and and, and use it in such a way that convinces us that we belong to you because of what you have done, hook, line, and sinker, what you've done for us in the work of Christ, what you've done for us by your Spirit at work in us to give us new life.
enabling us to believe. Father, while we may not be able to sort out all the details, something deep within us that resonates that says, it is of God. So, Lord Jesus, we pray you'd meet us at this table. It's your table. We pray that you'd meet us here to bolster, to increase our faith, to strengthen us, to enable us to love you, to love each other all the more. Work in us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all those who do understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign, sovereign mercy. And to believe and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. And to realize that the reason you believe is because God has worked in you by his grace. And now it's your desire in humble reliance upon his Holy Spirit to walk with him that's true of you, please come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left, these two sections down the aisle to my right. Take your piece of bread. And let me ask you to do something today. You don't have to do this because it's not in the Bible. But I think it would be good for your soul and good for us as a community. As you come, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And before you eat, just whisper or shout, you can do whatever you want to, the word, thank you. Not to me, obviously. I just happen to stand up here. But to the one who saved you. The one who appointed you, ordained you, assigned you to believe. Please come.